All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa, and your other host is Lisa Flicker. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great. We just spoke to Bill Diagardi. Bill is the founder, the CEO, and chairman of Four Springs Capital Trust based in New Jersey. What an interesting, interesting career. <laughs> really interesting. And I love that he has his hands in so many different things, right? He's a venture capitalist. He's in real estate. He's in, I mean, he's everywhere. Plastics, yeah. whatever the different things were. It's fascinating. Plastics. I think that, yeah, the true testament of like seeing the macro economy helps with micro investments. So, um, and he's doing a net lease properties, which we don't talk about that much on this podcast. So, uh, definitely an interesting guy and someone to um, to learn from. So, as always, please recommend the podcast to your friends. And if you have any questions and or comments, please shoot us an email. And with that, enjoy the podcast. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me uh, today on your podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So. Uh, we have you met Lisa Flicker, my, uh, my co my other host, not my co host, the other host. I'll go by anything Wait. you want to call me, Chris. That's fine. Hi, Bill. Nice to meet you. Likewise. So, Bill, you're in, you're in New Jersey, right? Yep. Down in Wall Township, New Jersey. Awesome. Um, and you are the, the founder, chairman, CEO of Four Springs Capital Trust. Correct? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, 2012, we launched the company. Yes. Well, you and I had a, you know, have, have been talking about the company, but maybe the general public, the, the millions listening to this podcast may, may not know about it. Can you tell us about Four Springs? Sure. Four Springs Capital Trust is a net leased, you know, commercial real estate private REIT. And we focus on buying mission critical properties from corporations and then leasing them back to them or they're already occupying them, we acquire them, we become the owner. So we're focused on companies like Amazon and FedEx, uh, companies of that large, you know, credit worthy companies in, you know, owning their real estate on a sale lease back or long term lease basis. Why, why would a company like Amazon sell something to you that's just to lease it back? Well, there's different factors. It's cost, uh, you know, really use of capital. So, you know, why have your money in the real estate, you know, uh, business when you're in the logistics, internet delivery business, marketing business, iCloud business, so much better return on their investment. Plus there are tax benefits to the corporation able to deduct the lease as a full expense. Oh yeah. Typically you you're getting uh, the full value of the property. So the property is a hundred million, you know, and you want to own it, you might have to put 50 million of equity, 50 million of a mortgage where we'll put up the whole hundred million and then charge you a rent factor, uh, for our return. Gotcha. And, and what's the benefit of, of being, I know you're structured as a private REIT. Like what's the benefit of being structured as a private REIT as opposed to public REIT or well, private? Yeah. We started out very small, and so you, you typically are a small private company until you get to scale. And then once you get to scale, you typically uh, try to become a public company or you stay private. So our 
goal was to you know launch the company, uh, raise capital, buy properties, get larger, uh, and eventually uh, take the company public. Is there something you did in your prior role that led you to think that this would be a good idea and to do this? Well, I've got four decades of a very interesting career. I was very lucky. So yes, it's a it's accumulation of the three decades prior. You know, in the 80s, I worked for, in New York City, uh, the largest real estate syndicator back in that time era called Integrated Resources. Mm-hmm. And we would buy buildings like 666 Fifth Avenue and, uh, you know, Park Avenue, Madison, but all over the United States. We were one of the largest landlords. And we were buying those and generating tax losses because back then you had a 55, 60% tax bracket, federal and state. Um, and that's where I really learned what I call the alternative investment space. I was very lucky at a young age to get into a fast growing young company, Integrated. And not only did we do real estate, but we did equipment, we did movie transactions, uh, you name it. We owned life insurance companies, mutual fund companies. So for that decade of the 80s, a great exposure to you know, capital formation for non-listed products, non-stock and bonds, but in every asset class. And that, you know, that bug had been in my, uh, I'd say in my veins. And from there, um, I started a small company with Integrated as my partner to distribute mutual funds. So again, it was sales, it was marketing, it was HR, and I grew that quite rapidly. And then that transformed through a financial transaction into a small public underwriter for venture capital companies Hmm. called Vantage Securities. And once again, I'm a Pied Piper. (laughs) I put my growth hat on, started with two employees and grew that to make 400 plus $100 million company. And uh, that was then merged in a sale into a public company, uh, a bigger brokerage firm. And then from there, I'm still in the now in the 90s, I decided that all the money that I saw being made was the venture capitalists. So I became a venture capitalist in uh, 1994, helped launch over 100 companies. So again, you know, hiring CEOs, firing them, CFOs, boards, a lot of recruiting. Uh, I know that's your expertise. You would have, I would have been a great client. You know, we were a multi-million dollar yeah, client. Yeah, darn it. Start doing that for, again, Bill. Exactly. For corn ferry, <laughs> hydrogen struggles and. Um, so we really build companies, biotech, technology companies to eventually get them, you know, public. So again, around the capital markets. And then we had a great run. Um, and so later, you know, I took some time off. And in 2008, believe it or not, I started for Springs, a little family office, buying at least real estate. And then in 2012, turned it into a REIT. So really I've been around syndication, fundraising, you know, M&A, IPOs, I've done all of it um, and decided, you know, in this part of my career, I wanted to build the company, uh, which we've done. And, uh, you know, it's been a, you know, a fun run, very volatile, you know, not a great time now, but, you know, I look back and I would do it again. What do you, what did, what do you like about the net lease space? Well, in that lease space, you know, for a certain segment of the investment market has all the characteristics 
of you know very durable income. You can underwrite the tenant, whether it's FedEx or Amazon or Domino's. You know some of the names we have. Um, so you know you have a good visibility into the financial wherewithal of the tenant to pay the rent. That's the most important. I have a tagline I use at conferences. If you're in the real estate business, as long as you collect the rent, you're a hero. The minute you don't, you're a bum. So, um, <laughs> you know, as a, as a CEO, so luckily we've collected rent. Second thing I liked, I get still get excited about discovering companies. So we do have middle market companies, a company like Liquid Box. What do they do? They make the plastic bags that Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks puts hot coffee in. They make water oh, wow. jugs. For Publix, a very you know innovative. Uh, other companies that have robotics. So I go and see every company, every property, just like when I was a venture capitalist. And my first question is the CEO, Mr. Magoo or Mr. Johnny Unitas, because I don't want <laughs> I don't want to finance any Mr. Magoos that drive the company. <laughs> and so, and I had a lot of Mr. Magoos in my venture capital days, as I call them. Uh, oh, I can't meet payroll. It's Friday at four. Wire me some more money. Um, yeah. You know, that uh, been through that. So, uh, you know, it's stimulating from the excitement and also as a deal person, very competitive to win these properties, to, to be selected as the buyer. Now, that's changed in the last 12 months. Now they call me begging me to buy properties where before I had to stand in line. So the market has changed. And it was a business that you could scale, so let's call it a billion in assets, uh, relatively quickly if you had the equity capital and you don't need a lot of people. I wasn't interesting. You know, I've had as much as 5,000 employees uh, either directly or indirectly reporting to me in my career, 400, you know, now I have about 30. I didn't want to have a big employee base um, in what I was doing. So, and I kind of stumbled into it. You know, I personally invested in a net lease property when I had taken some time off in lieu of bonds. And I said, yeah, this is pretty simple. I said, I think I can, I was bored. So I said, I'm going to build the company. And I bought one property here, you know, today I, I, I bought and sold over a billion dollars of properties. It's so interesting. It's so, it's amazing to me how you've built this entrepreneurial career and you have your hands in all these different things, which is extremely exciting. So are there any like challenges or failures or, you know, I always, I always like for people to hear some of those stories or else they leave thinking, hey, it was just easy for Bill. He just woke up and now he's doing this. <laughs> well, I know the three of us are on a, like a Zooms call. We can see each other and the podcast can only hear us. So I tell you, I used to be 6'4 and handsome. I'm now five <laughs> gray hair. Yes, I've, I've, I've been through uh, more, you know, what they call black swans, unexpected hard to predict uh, events. Unfortunately, going back to 1993, the first World Trade Center bombing, you know, I was in the, I had the Vantage Company, small underwriter. So the public market shut down. You had the Middle East crisis. You had fast forward, you know, 2097, you had your first tech bubble bust. And we were doing technology deals as venture capitalists. So in 97, if you look at the stock market for companies like Netscape and AOL and all those early ones, you know, they all tanked. There was a lot of blood in the water. Uh, and then unfortunately, you know, in 2001, you know, 9-11, uh, 
you know, that really uh, took the wind out of our sails. We had 180 employees, three floors in Manhattan, uh, another fellow myself owned the company. So we had, you know, multi-million dollar monthly overhead and the world changed, right? So we had to navigate through that. And we did that for four or five years. And in 08, 07, I left and it's still a family office, but then I went on my own, it really took a long two-year break and then decided to start, you know, uh, Fort Springs because every day was like Saturday. That's why I tell people I want to retire. I'd say, how many times do we go to the dry cleaners, <laughs> you know, run to the pharmacy. So, you know, I'm, run I'm to very the pharmacy, active. Yeah. I'm very active. And so, uh, you know, know how to recruit, know how to, you know, build. I've got a, luckily a good gift to gab. So a lot of challenges. And then at Fort Springs, we've had, our, you know, really some, very tough challenges in, uh, let's see, 2014 or 15, we had the company all ready for an IPO with uh, uh, RBC. So a young company, it was a couple hundred million, really premature, but they liked the team, the strategy, did the IPO roadshow, everything was great. But the week we were gonna launch the, the IPO is when Amazon bought Whole Foods. And then the whole world thought nobody would ever leave their home. You wouldn't have to do anything. And, and real estate was obsolete. So we couldn't transact. I raised some private capital uh, from uh, big credit funds, got the company bigger. And then just, you know, 13, 14 months ago, I had another, you know, real challenge. I had Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley at Wells Fargo taking my company public. Uh, along with Barenberg uh, from Germany and Mizuzo from Japan and uh, Scotia from Canada. I wanted to have a global shareholder oh, wow. base. Yeah. Again, small, relatively small uh, company, you know, um, supposed to do a $250, $300 million deal with $300 million in debt. And the, the world we're in today started back in really January of 22 is when interest rates all of a sudden broke 2%. And here we are now at almost five on the 10 year. And that put the brakes on the net lease business and the real estate business in general, because you need debt at an accretive level and there is no debt. So I've had to shrink the company from 600 million to 250 million. I've done that elegantly, um, very professionally. I didn't let any employees go. And now we're looking at, you know, it's an exciting day for me today because, you know, we closed the transaction and I paid off another 95 million as of today. Um, so I paid off over 235 million in you know, 13 months, not easy in a tough market. Wow. So now we're going we're to regrow. We're going to, you know, we have a strategy to wait out the market and look for opportunities. What type of opportunities so I, are you looking for? I, I might have been six, seven, you know. <laughs> now five, uh, well, I'll tell you a deal I'm looking at right now because the world has changed so quickly, so dramatically. It reminds me of the SNL crisis. In the last recession downturn, the financial crisis, people didn't make money in real estate. They made money in financial instruments backed by real estate. Paulson mm -hmm. shorted mortgages. So he was shorting a financial instrument, a, a bond, a package of mortgages. And there was a real volatile price. And so if you were short in that period, you made a lot of money. You didn't make a lot of money owning the asset, right? You were short against the financial structure. 
Now, with this correction in interest rates at, I think, four and a half today on the 10-year, um, and the capital markets shut down, there hasn't been a real estate IPO since I tried, so 13, 14 months, uh, there's blood in the water, right? And so now the debt on property, in some cases, is 100% of the value of the property. So, you know, there's opportunities, I wouldn't say distressed, it's a, it's a capital markets distress. The tenants are healthy, they're paying rent. It's the way, kind of like what happened to us, the way the company was financed is not appropriate for today's market. There's a lot of real estate in every asset class that was financed during the boom of the low interest rates, which was a long period of time, that now are gonna have to be refinanced and the values have gone down because the cost of capital has gone up. So. You know, I'm looking at some very exciting transactions that a, just two, a year and a half ago uh, would trade for $100 million and you can buy them today at $50 million. And the tenants there, same thing, everything's the same. The difference is the financial world has changed that dramatically. So you can make money, in my view, this is my opinion, on a go-forward basis of probably the next two to three years, finding high-quality assets that were misfinanced for this environment. They didn't do anything wrong. The world changed. That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, a lot of times we have people on here who are like, you know, very sticks and bricks type person, but I often forget that real estate is a financial instrument, right? It's a way to make money. It's, you know, we get all, uh, I mean, people get very emotional about the real estate and it's, you know, how do you know, but really, I mean, so you started out like, uh, how, what skill set have you kind of brought with you throughout real estate and then getting into venture capital? Like you see real estate as a financial instrument, right? For help people create wealth. Well, yes, it, it look, it's the biggest part of the economy, right? It's the most amount of assets on the planet earth are real estate, whether it's residential to any level of commercial or, or entertainment. So it's a big part of the fabric of the global world today. Um, so, I like it because it's, it's very mentally stimulating, right? And you have analytical skills. You have, you know, today there's a new risk factor. There's two new risk factors in underwriting real estate acquisitions that are brand new, over 50 years of doing this. One is your global warming, like a weather risk. If you own property today in Florida, commercial property in Florida, your property casualty insurance has gone up 300 to 700%. Well, where does that come from? It comes out of the rent that hurts your return on investment. The, the other is, you know, uh, and I'm not a political guy, is the blue state, red state. Um, you know, are you going to buy property in the state of Illinois uh, that's financially challenged, you know, uh, a atmosphere that is not pro-business? You have companies leaving. Are you going to buy in San Francisco with the, you know, social crime issues, social, you know, fabric issues of drugs? So you now have to underwrite a market based upon the political environment, the safety of the market. Can you get it insured? And will the insurance carriers stay there? These are things that were never, ever talked about. Right. And again, I've been involved in probably $50 billion of real estate since the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, that's new. It's a new risk factor that you have to analyze um, you know, in making a decision because you're going to hold these assets for eight to 10 to 12 years. 
Right, and I've heard a lot of people in the state of Florida saying they can't even get certain things insured. So that's couple yeah, they can't companies have because nobody wants to insure them. It's interesting. interesting And then what happens? That's a covenant in your loan, right? You got to have them if you have a mortgage. You have insurance. So it's a real headache. And how did I pick that up? Yes, I own a couple of properties in Florida, but I had a major insurance broker come in as I like to do. I'm a Columbo. And I said, just tell me what's going on. I'm hearing these rumblings. And you know, he came in from Dallas and you know, one of the top brokers in the, in the United States and took him to dinner. And, you know, I gave him some business and he said, look, this is where the world is going. You got to be ready for this. Um, and I was look, talking to a group yesterday. And when I hit him with that question, you could see the their face turn white because they knew I wasn't going to buy the building because they couldn't get insurance. <laughs> right. Yeah, we actually Lisa and I had a, a conversation with a, a public a news publication about, you know, the, this last year, the you know, a lot of younger the economy has been booming. Right. So people have been making a lot of money um, the last couple of years and things have slowed down. And they're asking about, do, you, do we think compensation is going to be up or down and bonuses up and down? And what what's going to be the reaction in the real estate professional from real estate professionals out there? And my thought was, uh, oh, we're going to have a. You know, the younger people are going to be like upset and shocked. Um, but the folks who've been through different cycles are going to be like, hey, this, you know, it was amazing record highs. And now it's, you know, it's, that, that never lasts forever. Like, I mean, is that something that are you just seeing this as another sort of just part of the cycle? Yeah, no, I, I think as I have identified three new underwriting, right, factors, right, yeah. we're going to a whole new territory and then you have a shift in society, you know, uh, COVID, in my opinion, was a wake up call, you know, to everybody on the planet. Either you got very nervous or you got moderately nervous or you didn't care, but it changed the, the psyche and the level of importance of a job. So a job today is not number one. You know, what's number one is quality of life, flexibility, you know, having enjoyment where that was sold to me coming out of college that you only get that at age 65 when you're <laughs> and you were didn't get that period right so that's a big and that's that's changing housing that's a lot of the stress on the office environment you know look at linkedin you know look at uh twitter there now x do those employees really need to come to the office so do you need all that space well as a businessman i can tell you rent in my 40 years has either been the third or fourth largest expense of the company because I was a people intensive business. You need a desk and a phone and a cafeteria and all that. So today, you know, we have flexible, you know, two, three days a week. You got to be here. Uh, I've set an example. I'm here six days a week. And, um, you know, this computer, you know, Zoom and stuff is great. I've been on all morning. I love it because I get to see, I get to get animated and I do everything call video because I used to like to do every call in person. Um, so I think there's a lot of shift. You have aging. I think the number is somewhere around uh, 10 or 12,000 people every day are turning uh, age 65 for the next decade. Um, also, this is the first generation that there's been a massive wealth transfer. So the largest amount of money on the planet Earth is going from our parents to us and now on to our children. And we were the first generation that had pensions, life insurance, equity build up in homes or in, in company. First generation where 
you know, a receptionist got stock options at Google, right? And now it's a multimillionaire. So there's a, a lot of dynamics when you look at the population and you say, all right, as an employer, how are you going to attract and retain people? Uh, you know, I have half my company is remote anyhow. I have employees in Minnesota, Boston, Florida, you know, all over the country. And, you know, before it was telephone, now I, get, I yell at them if they're not on the screen, I dock them $5. Pajamas. So, you know, I think, you know, we're going through, you know, a period, you know, probably very similar to the industrial revolution, but different. It's a human revolution. Okay. It's a human psychology revolution that's going on. Uh, I see it. I, I, I have four young daughters, young 35 to 30, uh, you know, four five grandchildren. So I, 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 as a venture capitalist, you're taught to look back to the youngest to find the next wave. And the next wave is much different than the wave of the people that started their careers in the 80s and the 90s. It's so in my opinion. Yeah, it's so interesting when you think about there are so many people in an older generation that just don't want to give up on what they have. And so there's the there's that feeling. And then you have Gen Z coming into the workforce and their feelings are completely different. And so, you know, where does it shake out? It's just, it's a really interesting thing as a student of human nature to see who wins out. And, and the biggest challenge CEOs, in my opinion, are going to have with this, you know, movement is mentoring. How do I develop the next, you know, senior vice president? How do I develop the next managing director? How do I develop my successor, right? How do I uh, groom that person? And the office politics, the office environment, you know, calling a younger person into a, you know, a nasty meeting, right? Two lawyers were fighting, we're gonna sue each other, gonna kill each other. They don't get that exposure, right? Um, so if you're like a young person on Zoom, yeah. uh, you're already burnt out. Well, you, you've lost, I'd say, three years of mentoring, right? Now, so I think the mentoring and the human growth of an employee has been stagnated. And what's happened then is poaching, right? It's great for recruiting because, you know, go steal somebody who's got four years experience because I need somebody who can handle years five through eight. And, you know, so there's a lot of poaching and more movement today uh, of employees than there probably has ever been. I, I think this, I mean, I think the employees, I'm seeing employees having less power than they did a year or two ago. And now more of our clients are having, you know, a requirement of being in the office more, um, kind of the power shift. Well, because, you know, it's like when someone figures out how to add a little more uh, dilution to a bottle of wine or a bottle of scotch, you make... You don't need all these damn employees to make the same money, right? And I, I hear from CEOs all the time and investors like, you know, used to thought you need 30. You can generate the same revenues with technology today. Technology, whether it's through marketing of Instagram and Facebook and digital media uh, on the Internet. So you can reduce costs in marketing, be more effective. Analytics, right? Um, chat G chat GPT. Uh, right. Yeah, um, and we've developed our first, you know, AI, uh, we call it Helper, H-E-L-P-R, and it's a closed community of data, and you can sit there and type a question and it will answer it. Uh, 
So, you know, you see that because I'm saying, why should the salesman have to answer the same damn question 30 times? Right. I put it all in a database. We use uh, Avora software and I hired a young kid on his way to college and he built this thing, you know, for, you know, probably, uh, I wouldn't even tell you how little and <laughs> bids I were getting were over a million dollars from programmers. And I did it for under 10 grand. And that kid probably knows better how to do it than anybody else. When, well, he did it in two months. Whenever I'm in trouble <laughs> with my technology, I ask my kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. It's, you know, that employee that entered the workforce, let's say 2015, I think is at a real disadvantage. Right. And, and people are yeah. counting on the companies that are in five days a week to train the people that they're going to eventually hire when they're in three days a week or less. It's the social, you know, how to how to act and, and, and be a contributor. The, the big thing is I want every employee to contribute to our plan, our success. And I also want them to have an eye out. Where do we make a mistake? Is this tenant a real jerk? Let's sell the property. Is that industry, you know, all of a sudden under attack because of technology, right? I'll give you a great example, uh, a blockbuster, right? So back in the day, I was fortunate enough to back two companies, Hollywood Video out of Portland and Movie Gallery out of Manhattan. And they were competitors to Blockbuster. But because, you know, being technology, I heard about digital streaming, was an investor in a company called Next Level Communication, and they were going to deliver the, the movies, remember, over the twisted pair to your home. Then fiber optics came. So they're a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, the home movie is gone because of technology. That is happening every day, not just in technology, but in medicine, in, in drug discovery, in our business, marketing over the internet. So you have a tidal wave of advancement that is does not need much human capital. And it all affects real estate. It, it does, but then you've got 350 million people, they have to eat, they have to go to the doctor, they got to sleep somewhere. So it, it changes the use. Right. So one of my strategies is to look for opportunities where you could repurpose that property. And that's already happening. I'm not inventing anything new where you, you have like taken a, a shopping mall in the suburbs. Well, maybe that becomes a medical center. Mm -hmm. it, Become some multifamily, it becomes more lifestyle because nobody knows how to cook anymore. So there's more restaurants, they're doing well. So it's repurposing. It's no different than what happened with the old steel factories, coal factories. Right. They repurposed into lofts, into, you know, uh, artsy uh, office space, you know. So yeah, I was just, I was just at Bethlehem Steel um, in Bethlehem and yeah, yeah the concert going on yeah. there and yeah, it's pretty cool, man. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're proof positive of you know studying the macro trends in the economy and the shifts, and and as opposed to just being so micro focused on real estate, can help you just be a better investor. There's software today I can rent, I can get data. I, it will tell me how many people went in that Burger King on Maple and Main every hour, every half hour, what type of car. And so you can do analytics today on, let's call it the location, which is the number one in my value driver of real estate, using data because they track their damn cell phones, right? And so you look at it, and I'm not the only person, a lot of people are looking at real estate 
and you have to do your data analytics, you have to do your demographic studies, you know, this employer going to leave, it's going to stay, zoning, you know, what's the political, uh, you know, to build new, some people don't like new buildings, right? So it's a lot more complicated than it's ever been in the last 40 years of my career. Do you find that your decisions are are more data-driven or kind of the gut feeling? I think that's, I see that in real estate where they're like, we're kind of getting to a point where the data is good enough that people might be able to make a decision from it. But then there's also just the feeling of, you know, after you've been in the market for so long, knowing kind of what you think is gonna happen. Yeah. I think the data, I, me personally, data either validates my gut or it kills it, right? And if you don't have a thesis, you know, in other words, the credit, the term, you know, you have to have a, a thesis, you have to then, you know, get it organized and computerized and you got to test every thesis and then you have to have enough guts to say, no, that style drift, I'm not going to buy that building because two of the six critical factors have got an F. Um, and, you know, making predictions on, in, in, you know, uh, you know, suburban sprawl, where's going to be the next hot, that's over. You know, the country is, is so geo-mapped that, you know, look at Zillow, right? You, put in a zip code, you know, everybody's house, you know, this, you know, that you put another thing about the public schools, it's either an A or it's an F, right? So if you put in the time, you should have a pretty good outcome, unless you have a black swan, like we're going through right now, where all of a sudden interest rates are up 400%, 500%. And if you made your theory on 2% money, it's now four plus three, it's seven with the SOFR, spreads, you know, you're, you're in tough luck. Right. Well, Bill, you're about to be in tough luck because you've just entered the hot seat. Oh, boy. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. <laughs> you ready? I know it's about the storm there in, in, uh, in Jersey. Go ahead. It's going to storm right now. Right I'm now. Rain down fire. All right. Do you have a book and or podcast recommendation? Hmm. Well, I would recommend very strongly, and I have been doing it already, for people to start following Deion Sanders, the coach of Colorado football team, because he and his uh, motivational speeches, his strategy is now online on Instagram and TikTok and wherever you can find it. You can Google it on YouTube. 
And he is capturing more than the football player. I One thing I do is with social media, I like to read about 50 to 80 comments to get a pulse. You know, what are, you know, people thinking and I see his communication skill of discipline of faith of being trustworthy is bigger than football and that's why in 90 days he has the biggest brand in America he has now a multi-billion dollar brand and I'll give you a multi-billion dollar idea that I'm going to send him you heard it here first you have a company called Bud Light that's got real marketing problem and Bud Light's got a blue can it's got a bad image right now because it tried some experiment, didn't work. And so you got a beer that is now in fifth place, could actually go out of business because sales are just not coming back. And you got a guy with the name Coach Prime. And what I would do is I would buy that brand, Bud Light, change it to Prime Light, and compete head on head in the beer capital of the world. That's Coors Light. And that would become a $50 billion brand overnight. And because all you do is making beer, people like Bud Light because it was football, it was sports, it was women, it was exciting. And that's what he brings on a global level because his following on Instagram is not just the people in Colorado, it's global. Right. That's well, there I heard you go. a speech from him the but other I, day. He did like a, not a speech. He was talking to the reporters and it was, it was very like, you know, focus on, don't worry about other people saying, doesn't matter what you, he's like, I don't care what right. you believe. Like, I, I know what I believe. Like, yeah, find find that inner core, that inner inner belief, uh, and it doesn't you know find that rock within, and you're, the tides have changed. It doesn't really matter. He's refreshing. It's not a political mud fight. It's more of a a positive. You know, every day is a difficult day. You got to make it positive, and that's what, the, in my opinion, our country needs right now. You're gonna. We do. We all need some. Besides good besides uh, prime beer, how about prime president? <laughs> no, no, he's got two young sons. He's got a big family. He wants to enjoy them. So he's only in his 50s. So that would be a big mistake. Yeah, I'm sure. So it seems like you've done a lot of exciting things in your career. What's what's the most memorable of all the deals that you've done? Well, if, uh, let's go in the, the 80s. Uh, in, I think, 84, if you Google uh, Vestron, which was one of the companies in the, in the video business, I, raised, I helped, you know, raise, I was part of the team, $5 million for a low budget film package, five films. And one of the films was Dirty Dancing, cost 750000 And I, uh, at least his favorite film. Uh, got to meet Jennifer Gray and Patrick Swayze. And I was the, the evangelist who convinced everybody it wasn't a soft porn movie, watch it. And we raised $5 million. And uh, so that in the 80s, you know, as I look back, was exciting. But we I did a lot of things, um, you, you know, in the venture capital world. You know, I've been around some of the smartest people, you know, on the planet, in biotech. And, um, you know, so just very fortunate that, you know, uh, even how crazy in 1999, we bought the men's and women's professional volleyball league. Kevin Kimberlin spent the Segura oh, yeah? myself. Took it out of bankruptcy. We turned it around and we sold it to uh, uh, an agent. Um, you know, so done all kinds of things: movie deals, sports deals. You know, lots of biotech and you know, internet transactions. But I've seen the world change. You know, through the seat at the table I've had in raising capital for early ideas. 
That's awesome. That's exciting. That's pretty cool. Um, you said you've had a you've had big, you know, a lot of employees, a small amount of employees. What do you look for when you're hiring someone? Well, it's changed over the years. I mean, today I'm really looking for someone that I can mentor, that I really want to share my experiences, so accelerate their knowledge transfer. So that you know, I have employees now that have worked with me for 30 years. Um, they follow me, so. If, you know, not bragging or anything, but I'm a good manager. I, you know, I'd say family is first. That comes before anything. So I yell at, if you got a soccer game at four, leave at three. Because um, that opportunity is once and it's gone, right? The kids grow. So I've always been big on family first. Uh, I'm never a screamer. We're all going to make mistakes. And I think that's why I think I have eight or nine employees here that are over 20 years uh, followed me through the various companies. That's, that's great. Awesome. It sounds like you've you've mentored a lot of people, and that's uh, that's phenomenal. Oh yeah. How about how about the other way around? With, have you had any any mentors that have really made an impact on you and your professional life? Two, uh, Zelig Zeises, God bless him, he's still alive. Zelig was the founder of Integrated Resources. Brilliant young man at age twenty one, built a, you know multi hundred million dollar public company. Uh, and took me under his wing early on, you know, taught me how to, told me that if you want to be successful, you got to read these boring prospectuses and read two or three a day. And you'll be able to understand how deals are structured and what works, what doesn't. Uh, and also be kind and treat everybody like you want to be treated. Now, he was Jewish. So he used to say, you want to be such a good person that when you die, the synagogue is going to be full. And I now tell people, I, when I die, I want the church full. That's all I want. And so be a good person. Then like later that. in my career, uh, Kevin Kimberlin, uh, probably the smartest venture capitalist ever, um, we we met through a, a relationship, a friend. We had lunch at the Swiss Hotel, now the Intercontinental in New York, and shook hands, never had a contract, 14 years, did billions, made lots of money. And we're still good friends. Um, and he shared knowledge on venture capital with me. I shared knowledge on motivation, recruiting, sales, leadership. And so I used to say to him, you pick them, I'll sell them. And it, <laughs> we watched 175 companies together. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So those two. Right? Well, Bill, you're a very interesting guy. Uh, I love these stories. I could hear it. For, I could hear more of them. Yes, um, maybe right we'll, maybe we'll do a part two. Well, if anybody is out there as a writer, I'm looking for someone to write a Netflix series about my career. Oh, okay, cool. I love that. If get you ever want to be a recruiter and join us on the recruiting side, feel free. Absolutely. <laughs>